What happens when life throws you a curveball? Will you stand and fight or give up and let opportunity pass you by? We're your hosts, Jen and Andrew Gallegos, and during this podcast, we will explore lessons and strategies that we all can use to make the most out of this one life that we've been given. Welcome to the Headed Home Podcast. So welcome to another episode of the Headed Home Podcast. We are your hosts, Andrew and Jen Gallegos. We are super excited about our episode today because we have a very special guest. Our guest today is John G. Miller. John delivers practical, common sense, personal accountability content that can be applied at work and at home. He is the author of some awesome books, particularly the million selling book, QBQ, the question behind the question, and also flipping the switch outstanding 47 ways to make your organization exceptional and co-author of raising accountable kids and the QBQ network. John invested a decade selling leadership and sales management training before becoming an author. He is also the founder of QBQ Inc., an organizational development firm dedicated to helping people and organizations make personal accountability a core value. Through his writing, speaking, and a nationwide network of certified distributors, John has brought his message to countless organizations, including Bosch and Loam, American Cancer Society, Wells Fargo, Verizon, Kaiser, Airmark, Subway, Auto Trader, and many more. He is a 1980 graduate of Cornell and lives in Denver, Colorado with his wife, Karen. They have six daughters, one son, you are my hero, and 12 grandchildren. <laughs> John, welcome to our podcast, podcast, and thank you for being here today. Thank you, Jen. Glad to be here, Andrew. Thank you. Appreciate Absolutely. it. Very kind of you. It's great to have you. <laughs> so, okay. Thanks. First off, I've read your, I've read your books multiple times and I had absolutely no idea that you were also from Colorado. We are, we live in Lakewood, Colorado. How yes. long have you lived here? We moved in here December 17th, 1997, drove down from Minnesota to escape the Arctic air. We had lived there 12 years and my speaking career had kind of taken off. And I turned to my wife one day and said, let's get out of the great white North. (laughs) And we drove in two minivans with four kids at the time and a bunch of animals down to Colorado and moved into the the home I'm standing in right now. And that was more than 23 years ago. So we've decided to stay. Awesome. It's a great, it's a great place to live for sure. Yep. Yep. Well, I'm looking forward to this conversation with you, John. I'm a I'm a big fan of your work. I was actually given I was actually given a copy of your book, QBQ, the question behind the question, about 10 years ago, right after I got into the mortgage business. My manager and my mentor at the time, he actually bought a copy of of the book and he distributed it. He he gave it out to all of the employees. And uh, it became a required reading for all of us. And I know that Dave Ramsey does that as well for his organization. Yes. I'm sure a lot of other leaders and, and um, managers do that as well. I think that's great. I learned a ton from it. I thought it was very valuable. I still utilize a lot of the lessons that I learned in that book on a day-to-day basis. And, and if you I know don't, our Jen list- reminds you too. <laughs> she does. Smart. Did you tell him that? Because she does throw out the QBQ out there every now and again. I bet she does. Yeah, we use it back and forth. Hey, wait, wait you know, till you're the wait till you're the author of QBQ and oh, you have seven kids staring at you and you uh, complain about something and they go, Dad, is there not a QBQ here for you? 
Oh gosh. And, and there always is. It, and, you know, I think our listeners and your message, um, I think our listeners are really going to enjoy that. So I, I'll just kind of let you go and tell us what exactly is QBQ and, and how did you come up with the idea? Sure. Uh, to be blunt, QBQ is all about personal accountability or personal responsibility, if you prefer. Something that we, well, many people think today is lacking in our society, but uh, the key question is, is uh, am I practicing personal accountability? But let me give you a little history here. Uh, born in 1958 in Ithaca, New York, where my dad was the Cornell University wrestling coach. My wife and I grew up five miles apart. I asked her out when she was 16. I was 18. We married when I was 22 and she was almost 20. And we'll be hitting 41 years this year. We left Ithaca, New York immediately to join a big company. And this is important. We joined. A, I joined a company called Cargill, a very fine firm. But I realized over five years living in three different cities, sitting at a desk was not my cup of tea. I was not good at working that eight to five with a boss watching me. Did not know I was a natural born sales guy. Did not know I had some entrepreneurial characteristics in me. And one day a friend said to me, why don't you get into sales? This was late 1985 after more than five years with the big company. And and I remember thinking, oh, no, not me. I can't sell. But anyway, I started interviewing and I found a job or a career selling management training, leadership training in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And that's what started why we're here today, the QBQ, because I was selling management training. I was calling on executives. I was talking to vice presidents and directors and sales managers and HR people. And I was selling my mentors training program for, for leaders and managers. And then I sat in about 10,000 hours of workshops over the next decade, and I listened. And it took me a while to pick it up, but I started to realize people would ask really lousy questions, including me. Uh, like, why do we have to go through all this change? And when is someone going to train me? And why can't that department do its job right? And when are we going to find good people? Why don't they pay me more? Who's going to give us the vision? We need more clarity. <laughs> and one day I, I said to a group, let's turn those questions around. Let's ask the question behind the question. So this was mined from a very real organic experience. I mean, I'm sitting with managers uh, in the mortgage business and mm -hmm. other businesses, many industries, yeah. school districts. Mm -hmm. And I'm asking I'm hearing these questions. I'm thinking, there's got to be a better question. Like one, one CEO looked at his 11 VPs one day and basically said, what do you mean you don't know the mission? It's been on the wall for a year. <laughs> and I'm sitting in the back as a group facilitator thinking, there's got to be a better question here. So one day I taught the question behind the question to a group. And here's an example. Instead of asking, why do we have to go through all this change? Let's turn it around and ask, how can I adapt to the changing world? It's that simple but it's that powerful. Until I start asking those internal questions, what can I do to change me? Nothing good is really going to happen. So I started teaching it to small groups. It stuck. And if you know much about the training industry, very little sticks, but this stuck. And so within a year, I left my mentor selling his training, went off, built my own program, started dubbing myself. One day I just decided in 1995, you are a speaker. I dubbed myself speaker. <laughs> and we were living in uh, the Twin Cities and I started talking about the QBQ. And what's kind of interesting, Andrew and Jen, is at first I talked about a lot of different things, you know, trust building and the five keys to leadership. And then people would start saying, you know, that was a great session, but that best part was that QBQ. 
Hmm. Or a month later, somebody would say, uh, I remember the QBQ. They, they'd forget the seven ways to build trust stuff. They'd forget the leadership content because, you know, like there's a billion leadership speakers today. Yeah. But they remembered this little tiny idea called the QBQ, the question behind the question. And so I started speaking on it. A couple of years later, we moved to Denver and my speaking career took off and we started writing books. And, and then uh, 13 years ago, our oldest child, Kristen, uh, she's 38 now. She's the oldest of seven. One day I said to her, hey, instead of sitting at your desk in your cubicle at your company, she was 25, <laughs> uh, do you want to come work with me? And she just said, okay. <laughs> and she joined me. We hadn't even worked out a payment, or a salary program, compensation. And now she goes all over the country, of course, mostly at this moment, virtually. But she yep. has traveled to like 44 of our nation states speaking on QBQ. So it's great to have a woman and a millennial and a daughter out there talking about personal accountability because that's what QBQ is all about. That's great. So you you say in QBQ that there are two myths surrounding accountability. Can you tell us yeah. more about that? I sure can. Uh, first myth is we think QBQ or accountability is uh, for someone else. We think it's something I do to other people. You know, managers for years have said, I'm calling my, my team in on Tuesday and we're going to have a real tough meeting because it's time for me to hold them accountable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And parents do the same thing. In fact, we wrote a parenting book and I have no hesitation showing it to you because I am all salesperson, raising accountable kids. When we sent that, that an email out to people saying, you know, QBQ, uh, or that Raising Accountable Kids book is available now, we got back about 50 emails that basically said, uh, thanks, John and Karen, my wife and I wrote it together. Uh, uh, just what I need to get my fifth grader to, to, to do his homework. Uh, just what I need to get my, my teenage daughter to speak to us more respectfully. Uh, just what I need to get my Gen Z son off the couch and out in the workforce. <laughs> you know? All of a sudden, it was like, just what I need to change my kids. Mm -hmm. And we've always wondered when they get to page three of the book and we say something totally profound. My child is a product of my parenting, hmm. period. It's not the schools. It's not the church. It's not the soccer coaches. It's not uh, Donald Trump or Joe Biden or Obama or George Bush. It is me, the parent, the mom or the dad. My child is a product of the way I raise them. That's pure accountability. So often we think accountability is for somebody else. We also think, especially in a corporate setting, we think accountability is a group thing. That's the second myth, really. We mm -hmm. think it's for the team because we've all heard those oxymorons like shared accountability, mutual accountability, team accountability. Y'all know what an oxymoron is, right? Yep. You know, words that clash like jumbo shrimp, sure. country music. You <laughs> yes. got that, right? Yeah. Yep. Okay, good, good. <laughs> So people would say, yeah, team accountability, that's great. Well, what would happen and what does happen to this day in the organizational world is people hide behind the team. Mm. Think about that. We hide behind mm. the team. Well, Makes something sense. didn't get done. So it was the team's fault. The team didn't have enough tools. The team didn't have a clear mission. The team, the team didn't gel. Well, actually, teams are only built on individuals. And when individuals take personal accountability, great things happen. So regardless of how big the team is, if the people on the team practice personal accountability and say, what can I do today to be my best? How can I help the team move forward? It sure beats blaming, complaining, and whining about my team coworkers. So mm -hmm. the myths are we think accountability is something for others. It's mm -hmm. not. 
and we think accountability is a group thing. No, it's very much a John Miller, me thing. Mm -hmm. So when we're thinking about like personal accountability, um, why, why is it so imperative for both organizations and individuals? Well, mostly because all problems begin with people. I had a mentor years ago who used to say, if we could just get rid of all the people, you know, we wouldn't have any problems. Right. All problems come from our humanness. So we got a problem in the business. Let's say our customer service scores are low or our productivity isn't where we want or our people aren't engaged and don't really want to be there. Our attitude morale is off. All of this comes back to people. So if I'm a manager, I need to say, okay, I own this department. What can I do to be a better manager leader? If I'm the CEO, I need to ask, how can I blank, whatever that is, Mm -hmm. what can I do? Instead of asking, why can't we find good people? What about turning it around and saying, what can I do to attract more competent people today? So everything comes back to personal accountability, whether it's your marriage or parenting, Uh, It all comes back to John Miller saying, okay, um, I can't change people over there. I am frustrated. I am disappointed. I may be even a little angry, nothing wrong with having emotions, but what can I do? So if you want to solve a problem, we can always say, well, it's up to the world to solve this problem. Uh, Or we can say, well, what can I do to solve this problem? So we believe everything begins and ends with John Miller taking ownership, personal accountability, responsibility for the problem. Now that is not to say I own every problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that'd be like enabling. And right. we don't want to enable people. We don't want to cover for people. We don't want to cover. If we have an employee who's, who's not doing the job, it's not a manager's job to cover for them or adopt them or carry them. But it is my job to look in the mirror and say, how can I be a better coach for this person? So we don't own every problem, but we need to know what problems we should own and then take accountability for solving them. Everything begins with me. And there's real power in that. I mean, I think, you know, as a, as a leader in, you know, the educational field, I think, you know, whenever I've felt frustration from a situation where I felt like someone wasn't meeting my expectations, um, you know, there's a, there's a piece that I could potentially trace back to me of, of what, you know, QBQ, what are, what expectation was I not clear enough on, you know, it happened to me this morning, John, with my daughter, I was doing her hair before school. And I said, go get me a rubber band for your hair. Right. So she brings back, you know, one of those like stretchy rubber bands that you would use in the office. She didn't bring back, bring back a hair rubber band. And I I felt a level of frustration. Like, you know, Ava didn't, Ava didn't, you know, do what I wanted her to do, but ultimately that, you know, what could I have done better in this situation? I could have been more clear with her. And so I think, you know, on any level, Um, this gives you power to really reflect on your behavior. Right. Well, communication is what you're talking about right there and being clear and all those things. And I I blame Andrew. (laughs) Everything's my fault around here. I'm sure Andrew does the hair, right? Andrew, you do the hair, I have done the hair. I've done the hair a few times. I've done pigtails. Oh, man. And I actually took a picture of it and posted it on Facebook. And I got a lot of likes. I think it was John. Good. It was crooked. The part is. <laughs> I was like, you sent her that she way. Was, she was young enough that she didn't realize how bad it was. She was just happy wow. that I did it. So I could with six daughters, I could we could talk hair for a while. I bet I bet we could. Yeah, I bet you. <laughs> Let know me mention a quick that. story. I'll just I'll tell you the shortened version. And Jen, it's because I know you're in the educational field. Kristen, my daughter, who works with with us and goes around speaking on personal accountability, 
she used to be with um, um, one of the universities here in Colorado. She was an academic advisor. Mm-hmm. And one day there was a, a mess up, a problem with a student. She got in the wrong classes. Everything went wrong. They, the schedule was botched. And when Kristen, Kristen tells the story when she speaks and she does a much better job of it than I do. But when she and a colleague sat down to debrief on what went wrong with this poor student whose schedule got all messed up. Uh, at one point, Kristen, remembering the QBQ, you know, it's how she was raised. She said, well, I could have done this, this and that d- better. And the other, the colleague went, mm-hmm. And Kristen sits there waiting okay, what could you have done better? <laughs> and, and so the way Kristen positions it is, she calls it the 70-30 story. She, she's thinking in her mind, okay, I'll take 70% of the blame, but could you at least take 30% of the blame? <laughs> but in the end, we can't make someone own up. Yeah. We can only say, what could I have done differently? So that's what QBQ is all about. And it really... I know you'll get into them, but it does eliminate three very human traps. And we can discuss those uh, anytime. Well, yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, uh, I know there's, I wanted to ask what problems QBQ solves, but I think that's kind of in line with that. So well, yeah, because it solves the human problem. Uh, it's kind of funny. A few years ago, we got, a, I got an email from Australia from, from a medical person, a nursing person. And she actually said, do you think you could write a QBQ for nurses? And my wife's an RN. Well, she's retired now. So that's what the RN stands for, retired nurse. She understands, she understands the medical world. She understands QBQ. QBQ applies everywhere. You can be a loan officer. You can be a school counselor. You can be a CEO. You can be the guy who picks up our garbage with waste management. You can be any human being and QBQ applies. You don't need it written for your profession. Right. You just need to understand there's three traps. The first one is victim thinking. The second one is procrastination. And the third one is blame and finger pointing. That's all rolled into one. So you take victim thinking, you know, um, poor, poor me, pity party. The world is against me. The system is unfair. Well, okay. Right now you have a choice. You can wallow in sorrow or you can say, what can I do to move forward? You can say, what can I do to learn, grow and change? You can say, the world is against me. The system is unfair. Or how can I get out and contribute to the world? There's always a choice. Mm-hmm. And so victim thinking, which is also called whining, and sometimes entitlement thinking, looks like this. Why do we have to go through all this change? Why don't I ever get a break? Why aren't people nicer to me? Why can't I find better friends? Teachers in school districts say, why can't we get better parents <laughs> and better mm-hmm. students? Mm -hmm. I've heard it all. I've done a lot of work with the educational field. Mm -hmm. So the victim thinking piece is a very human problem. Andrew, you say, you know what, what problem does QBQ solve? Well, we first have to start inside us. We got to get rid of that whining and victim thinking. The second trap is uh, procrastination. And that sounds like, well, when will they get back to me? And when will they give me more information so I can make a decision? And when will somebody improve this place? And when will somebody solve that problem over there? The minute I've said when, 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 I've said, well, I guess I'll just procrastinate today and let others take action. There's no adding value if I'm not taking action. I, I need to do something more often than not. So uh, procrastination, we call it the friend of failure. That's in the QBQ book, mm-hmm. the friend of failure. If you want to fail, just get out of bed in the morning and say, well, I think I'll wait around for other people to do good stuff while I do nothing. And the third trap is blame. And that sounds like who done it? Who dropped the ball? Who missed the deadline? Who made the mistake? 
You know, who left the socks on the stairs? Who made the mess in the kitchen? Who left the peanut butter and the bread out? Now, don't worry, parents, trust me. We need to <laughs> teach. Day in, day out, we are teaching. Mm -hmm, but yeah. the goal is not to look for culprits and create fear in any environment. The goal is to teach. But the blame thing in business, especially in organizations, sounds a lot like, well, whose dumb idea was this? I'm sure you've never heard that question. <laughs> <laughs> never. Never. You know, who, who, who dropped the ball? Who made the mistake? Who missed the deadline? Blame, finger pointing. Right. And here's the problem with blame and finger pointing. It gets us nowhere. Yep. It solves no problems. And it usually causes other problems like anger. It pushes people away. It creates fear. I mean, you know, there's old lines like firings will continue until morale improves. That's the way a lot of organizations have been run over the years. You know, we'll, we'll stop firing people when morale improves. Uh, probably that is a lot about culprit seeking, looking for who did it, who made the mistake, instead of with having an attitude of accountability first and then training and teaching second. So the three traps, victim thinking, procrastination, and blame. If you get the QBQ book, you'll read it. Then I say, read it again, then read it again. And gradually you'll start to say, you know what? I'm whining less. I'm delaying action less often. And I am not pointing fingers anymore. When I see a problem, I am immediately saying, what can I do to help? Well, I think that's great. And, and when you talk about blame, you know, it also creates disconnect. Every organization and every team, we're all working towards the same goal. And when that blame is going on, and that's something that I really got out of QBQ right. when I read it the first time was I was just a pro at finger pointing and fi finding out who dropped the ball mm -hmm. and then just moving that to me and what could I have done and how can I implement something into the system to make sure that it doesn't happen again, really change that. And it creates more of a connection between you and your team. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about marriages, mm -hmm. you know, 50% yeah. of all marriages are going to die with in divorce. And if you want to see yeah. the epitome of blame, you know, go to a, yeah. go to a, an attorney's office when there's a couple breaking up, and people sometimes have read QBQ and said, I wish I'd had it 10 years ago <laughs> because I realize now I was just trying to fix my wife. I was just trying to fix my husband. And we went right down the drain relationally because we never stopped trying to fix other, fix each other. What can I do to change me? And of course, that's, that's one of the fun parts about QBQ. You know, people, people get the book. This is the newest version, the fifth edition. People Ooh, get the book. Nice. They, they take it home. You know, Jen brings it home and says, you know, I, I got to put this exactly where Andrew will find it. <laughs> I know what I'll do. I'll put it on his nightstand and then I'll get in bed and start praying, Lord, deliver him to that book. <laughs> and then Andrew puts it next to the coffee pot to make sure Jen sees it in the morning. Uh -huh. with a little note yeah. saying, hi, honey, I think you'll like this. <laughs> you got to read it. <laughs> well, okay. So speaking of books, I know that you and your wife, Karen wrote a parenting book. We have, uh, we're right in the thick of it. We have two kids, um, that are four and six right now. Oh, nice. Um, and you know, I, I mean, as I used to be a teacher and I was a, a principal and now, um, oversee student discipline for a large school district in Colorado. Wow. Um, but I'm constantly thinking about behavior and My adult, bad. adult behavior and how adult behavior, um, impacts kid behavior. And so, you know, t talk a, a little bit about the, the, um, parenting book that you wrote sure. and, you know, some of the ways in which, you know, we can, um, build some of those personal accountability skills in our in our sure, kids. Sure. Boy, Jen, I can't imagine what you do as, you know, 
in charge of student discipline. Um, you know what? I'm kind of in charge of student discipline around here. Okay. <laughs> I mean, when you raise seven kids. You're doing kids, a great job. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you. But you, you raise seven kids. You got to think about that. You're kind of yep. in charge of uh, child discipline. Oh, wait. What if I'm a weak parent who thinks the child should be in charge? Mm-hmm. And then I let mm-hmm. that child go to school and then they get in trouble and I come in and I blame the principal. Mm-hmm. I blame mm-hmm. the teachers and I blame the child's friends. Mm-hmm. Instead of looking in the mirror and saying, wait a minute, was I in charge at home over all those years I was raising this child? Did I let my two-year-old control the emotional uh, <laughs> state of the house? Did yeah. I let my six-year-old demand and win? Did mm-hmm. I let my teenager speak to me disrespectfully and wear whatever he or she wants to school? Because, you know, hey, that's freedom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what this book's all about, is making sure you're a good parent by being in charge. Not in a harsh way. Mm-hmm. We always love our children. But one of the things we challenge people with in this book is uh, who's in charge in your home? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, the other key point in this book, I mean, there's a lot of, lot of stuff, but is the child is a product of my parenting. So don't mm-hmm. blame the world. Don't blame the friends. Don't, don't blame the, the politicians. Do not blame Hollywood. Do not blame what they see on TV. You should be in control of that. Look at your look in the mirror and say, okay, my child is demonstrating great anger. What have I done? Have I done anything to cause this child to be experiencing great anger? And then now how can I help this child deal with that anger appropriately? Anyway, the book is all about personal accountability, Jen. Mom and dad looking in the mirror. The book is not for the kids. Mm-hmm. It's for me. Yeah. And, you know, I, a light bulb went off for me years ago when I was a high school dean and, you know, I would get kids in my office and, you know, something they would make a bad choice or whatever. Um, and they would be in this victim place where they couldn't own the, own their behavior. And what I realized, and, and one thing that I really teach and train now, um, is, is through, and it's really through something called restorative practices, but it's allowing kids to, um, holding them to a high level of expectation and -hmm. accountability and giving them the same level of support. So like, I love you a lot and I care about you a lot. And because of that, kids, my own kids, I'm going to hold you to a high level of expectation. Absolutely. And I think, I think that's what you were touching on is you need, you need to have both. And ultimately, um, you know, whether it's, you know, me being a, a school administrator or whatever, modeling for kids and showing them that, that you can take some ownership and accountability when a situation goes wrong. Um, or if I'm having an issue with my child or student to say, you know what, like I walked into that conversation and I was pretty upset. Um, and I can take responsibility for that and opening that door for them to recognize that like, Hey, you can take ownership over a situation because ultimately that means you can change your behavior and get better every day. Right. Like that's the whole goal. Um, and I think, I think that that can be incredibly powerful as a, as a parent, um, or an educator to just really recognize that like, we are constantly modeling, um, those pieces. And and like you said, it starts with us period, um, to, to be able to, on that. And your father, I just wanted to mention this because there's a chapter in QBQ where you talk about uh, your dad, Jimmy Miller. He was a a wrestling coach at Cornell University for 25 years. I loved how um, one of his teachings before going into a match was, you know, you have three opponents, yourself, your opponent, and the ref. 
and you must be good enough to beat the ref, which I really enjoyed. Uh, I think that needs to be, that needs to be talked about more, uh, in, in athletics, but what was it like growing up with a parent uh, who was a coach in, in, in such an intense sport at such a high level and how did it impact you? Well, thank you, Andrew. You need to know the whole story. He was a wrestling coach and a Christian pastor. Okay. So he yep. pastored he pastored two churches from the year I was born in 1958 to 1970. No, excuse me, 1994. Excuse me. So from 58 to 94, he actively pastored a church. Then he moved to another church and pastored there. So I grew up watching my dad every Sunday preach. So I am a PK. I am a preacher's kid. So, of course, he taught me many good things from that side of his life. Uh, but the other side that scared me was what were the biceps that he had developed milking cows that he used as a wrestler. <laughs> he oh, <was> gosh. <laughs> remarkably, I got to show you something. Yeah, let's see. <laughs> I have this placard. I don't know what the red stripes are all about. Probably just a design back. Look at the year. Uh, 1936. Wow. 36. Wow. wow. So, my dad is long gone now. He died in 02, but um, he was born in 1921. So he was, he would have been 15 that year. And he's, he always told me he didn't start wrestling till 15. And if you know anything really? about youth sports, which you would, yeah. I yeah. can tell. Oh gosh. Yeah. Kids are starting at five, yep. whether it's soccer or wrestling or gymnastics, whatever. And so he didn't start till he was 15, but he, he became a national AAU champion. They didn't ha have the NCAAs back then. And okay. he missed the Olympic team by a one match in 1948 for London. So he was a good wrestler. He was a pastor. And one thing about my dad, he had his faults for sure. Of course, nobody's perfect, but he was a teacher. He was a storyteller. Uh, gee, I wonder where I got it. Yeah. <laughs> he would speak at that. sports banquets. He would speak on Sundays. Of course, he would talk to his team of wrestlers and I would be a nine-year-old hanging out on the wrestling mat on, on the Cornell campus. My dad was a teacher and he always had a story. Now my kids in 2021 will basically roll their eyes and go, okay, I know dad, here it comes another story. <laughs> I'm a storyteller. But he taught me many good things. And Andrew, one of them was to be good enough to beat the ref. And I gotta tell you, I know all my content, but I also know the, the, those pieces that people never forget. And one of them is that whole beat the ref mentality, especially yeah. in a world today where you can go to a high school athletics uh, competition and you can literally turn and watch parents acting like nine-year-olds mm -hmm. in the stands, screaming and blaming the officials and yeah. modeling just awful behavior for our kids. And then we wonder why they grow up making excuses and doing the blame game. Well, they watched yeah. mom and dad blame the officials for every soccer game they ever attended. Yeah. So my dad just said, uh, no matter how many mistakes that referee makes, you need to ask, what could you have done differently? He didn't know he was teaching QBQ. I love it. Yeah, I love that. So you kind of getting back to this major idea of accountability. You say the cornerstone of accountability is this concept of, I can only change me. Right. Right. Um, and I know you touched on this a little bit, but I, I did want to mention, right. um, just this story really quickly, um, about my own life. So, uh, when Michael, our son, he's four now, um, wait a minute, right wait out, a minute, wait yep. a minute. my only son is named Michael John. 
Seriously? Oh, nice. Okay. Can I tell you something? Yeah. My, my dad passed away 11 years ago and his name was Michael John. And oh. so we named my son after my dad. So, so he's yep. Michael John. He, well, no, he's Michael James. He's Michael, he's Michael, Michael James. Joseph. Okay. Or, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm thinking of your middle Which name. son are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, there's this other one. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but when he was, when he was born, um, very quickly after he was born, I realized I had to have multiple brain and spine surgeries. Um, and we had, a, well, you know, I'm, I'm good now. Um, yeah. For the most part, the you'd most say, part. yeah. <laughs> uh, but I had a one-year-old, we had a one-year-old and, and a newborn. And, um, you know, I, the reason I'm bringing this up is because I think there's things that happen to us in life that are incredibly difficult. And, um, after my first brain surgery, I actually got sicker and I remember thinking, and you know, John, I, I read your book eight, like eight years ago. So mm. I, you know, knew this, this thinking and am very reflective on it, but I, those, those victim mindsets started creeping up where it was sure. like, why is this happening to me? And I had this revelation where it's like, you don't have any control or power over the things. There is a lot of stuff in life that you don't have control over. Um, but when you, when you look at a situation that can be difficult, like what I went through, um, you can't change anything unless you can say, you know, what can I do to make this situation better? What can I, you know, at minimum, you can control your mindset. Um, and, and that was really powerful for me. And I don't know if you can, you know, talk about, um, accountability in, in a frame like that, but I, I do think it's worth, you know, mentioning that even in situations where you don't have necessarily ownership over those situations, you do have ownership over how you respond to them. Absolutely. I mean, um, there's an old, old, old quote that life is, you know, 90% what happens to us and 10% how we react to it or, or 10% how excuse me, 10% what happens to us and 90% our life is based on how we react to what happens to us. And that's exactly what you were going through. I mean, Mm -hmm. our life experiences shape us. Mm -hmm. Uh, My mom died one Tuesday in 1975 when I was 16 of a Mm -hmm. cerebral hemorrhage. Just gone. Three o'clock, got a headache, was gone by five. My friend, Philip, my best friend, showed up an hour later. His mom and he came to the funeral service three days later for my mom. His mom just passed away three months ago at age 99. So if you think about that, wow! I lost my mom at 51. Philip and I were both born May 28th, 1958 in the same hospital. Our moms knew each other. We were buddies. He was the best man in my wedding. Wow. But, but he got to keep his mom Till he was 62 and a half. I lost my mom eight, day, eight days before I turned 17. That's a big dramatic difference between two, two men. Sure. Yeah. I could have chosen wallowing in victim thinking over the fact that I lost a mom and he didn't. Yep. Now, this isn't fair. I'm, trust me, it was the most defining day and life, a moment in my life when my mom passed away, of course. But I had to move forward. Mm-hmm. You had to move forward, Jen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's always a choice. Wallow in victim thinking and complain about what others have. Well, gee, you know, nobody else has brain injuries that like I have or need surgery on their back or whatever. Mm-hmm. But you didn't go there. You just said, yeah. well, this is not good. I don't like it. I've got Andrew to support me. 
What can I do to move forward? What mm-hmm. other choice is there? That's what I don't understand about yeah. the human beast. Truly. What, what is the value <laughs> in wallowing in a pity party? Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, there's, a, there's a, something I always tell every group. The, the biggest problem with victim thinking is when I play victim, I serve no one. Mm-hmm. I want you to think about that because sometimes in my audiences, they'll go, well, I serve myself. No, I don't even serve me. Mm-hmm. How am I serving me, John Miller, when I wallow in right. victim thinking? How am I learning, growing, and changing? How am I moving forward? I know, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, Jen, because you've had uh, health issues that I've not ever struggled with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we all have something in our life that we can either focus on, dwell on for a lifetime, or we can say, what can I do to move forward? Good for you. Agreed. Well, and, and I love that you, I just love your message because I feel like that victim mentality, that victim thinking it's ingrained in so many of us. And I love the fact of, or the idea of, of working with our children and helping, you know, us be accountable so that we're modeling for them and, and they're taking ownership of yep. their, their things. But, um, yeah, it's such a, if you don't grasp that concept at some point in your life, you're going to struggle. We all have challenges. We all have a choice and we can all ask, what can I do to move forward? And that's what QBQ is all about mm-hmm. every day. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. Great stuff. Well, I, a couple more questions. I know we're, we're up against it here, but um, I did want to ask, we have a lot of real estate agents and loan officers that listen to this um, podcast and, and leaders and managers, your book, outstanding 47 ways to make your organization exceptional. Um, is is great, you know, from a leadership standpoint. Well, I, I just I, happen to have a copy with me. I don't know why that happened. Thank you. Oh, I love it. There it, there is. it is. Well, and you know, I I run a team, and um, it, it, you know, even from a team perspective, what does it take to to make a person or an organization uh, to be outstanding, and why is that critical? Well, that's a good question. It's funny in the book, outstanding. When we came, when it came time to dedicate it. You know, I didn't want to do something corny like dedicating it to my wife or something. I mean, it's deeper, so that's kind of old hat. Who hasn't done that, right? <laughs> Even if she is outstanding. <laughs> but it just came to me the day we were ready to, you know, with the publisher Penguin Random House to um, put the, uh, the dedication in. It just says this, Andrew, to everyone who cares enough to improve the place, hmm. you are outstanding. So if you look in an organization, you've got your eight to fivers. You've got the people who don't care. They're just working a job. You've got the people who will say, sorry, not my job, not my problem, not my department. I just work here. Then you've got these other people who who care. They recognize they're going to spend at least a third of their lifetime professionally. And they they care. So -hmm. they care to learn. They care to learn to be a better coach. They care to learn to understand the vision for the organization. They, they, They care to learn how to take care of the customer who pays our bills. They care to learn new things. And that's what outstanding people do. So if you bring, you know, if you bring 10 outstanding people together, Andrew, guess what you're going to have? You're going to have an outstanding organization. Yeah. And this is, this is not a QBQ book. Of course, there's a theme of accountability. We even say in the, uh, the intro, don't be looking at other departments and waiting for them to be outstanding. Hmm. That's my job. So it's very QBQ. But anyway, uh, you gotta, you gotta care enough to improve the place. You know, you don't have engaged employees. Do you care or you not care? If you care, then you're going to be working to be a better manager. And that's, you know, one of the key pieces in this book is it points out how most managers have never been trained. 
Yep. So they true. Were, Absolutely. They were the best school counselor huge. or they were the best loan officer and they got elevated for all the wrong reasons. I made a, I don't make many yep. face-to-face sales calls anymore, but a couple of years ago, I, I actually made a face-to-face sales call on a local Colorado hospital and a team met with me and they were looking for speakers. And later I found out from a friend on the team that I offended one of the people there because I had made this statement. Most people are promoted for the wrong reasons. Absolutely. It's so true and, though. And, yeah. And she was she was in the process of being promoted to director <laughs> of nursing. <laughs> well, it's and true. She, she took offense at my comment, but we get promoted because we're good at something does right. not mean we know how to manage people. And by the way, I have no problem with the phrase manager. I just have to chuckle in my in my <laughs> groups. And you've joined the QBQ group on Facebook. Just if uh-huh. you don't know how to find it, QBQ group is the search. But anyway, people will say, you know. Uh, leaders, leaders lead people, managers manage things. And it's their way of dissing being a manager. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Every people manager I had was a manager. Uh And all I wanted from them is to learn good people management skills. So this whole buzzword leadership management's bad. Leadership's amazing. Stop. (laughs) If we're a manager of people, Let's learn good people management skills. And then guess what? Our people will say about us. They'll say, hey, he's a great leader. So true. Because he knows how to manage people. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little agitated. I love that. I think it's since 1986. 1986, okay? And I can't stand the buzzwords. I, I understand. I love the, I love how you brought that up though. I think there's a chapter in that. I know there's a chapter in that book where it talks about, yeah, the, the, the greatest players don't always become the greatest oh, coaches. Yeah. You know, My dad and, and, always said his mediocre wrestlers became the better coaches Yeah, because the yeah. top wrestlers had that ego drive, which made them want to be number one, but in management, you need to reverse that. You need to make your team number one. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Anyway, interesting. We could go on for hours. I, we I really, you I, was a, I, we I really, told you I was a shy, was introverted guest. I appreciate that about you. Yeah, that's it, it's interesting because you know I was a high school math teacher and then a counselor and all that stuff. And um, the only reason I got promoted is because I was good at those things. Yeah, and I've right. had to learn, you know, being uh, a leader. Like I've had to learn to really understand how to be a good leader. No one ever taught me. I had to, I had to find that information on my own. And I think that's really important. So, um, if, thank you, (laughs) um, if people could walk away today with just one, like the most important idea from your content, what would you hope that would be? It's funny. You mentioned Dave Ramsey earlier. He's had me on the show a few times. He, uh, started a list about 10 years ago of five or six books, his, his staff must read. And the first mm-hmm. book listed was QBQ. <laughs> this was when he first was building that list. So it was an amazing honor for us and quite a blessing. Dave, sure. Dave has to be honest with you. Dave has sold a lot of QBQ books for us. He's a, mm-hmm. he's a good man. And here's the key. He knows accountability is the foundation to being debt-free. Mm-hmm. Mm. You're not going to ever get out of debt unless you take personal accountability, right? But he always ends every interview I've done with him with, John, what's the number one takeaway? Kind of like you just did. Yeah. So I always say this, I can only change me. Mm. That's it. So I challenge your listeners, your viewers. I challenge myself uh, to ask, who have you been trying to fix lately? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Think about that. Who have you been trying to fix? You just wish a little bit. They just (laughs) behave differently, be differently, think differently. And then I say to those people, let it go. Because mm-hmm. all you're doing is probably damaging the relationship. All, all we can do is change ourselves. So the number one takeaway from this material has always been 
wow, I came into the training session trying to change my spouse, my, my adult son, my boss, my, my colleagues. Now I'm going to work on me, working on me. That's what accountability is all about. Good stuff. It's only power you have. Uh, where can people find you before we go? QBQ.com. I always laugh, Jen, because years ago on interviews, we'd give out phone numbers and addresses. And now it's just like QBQ.com. Stop by. QBQ.com. All right, John. Well, thanks for being Thank with you. us today. This and great. Um, Thank you. If, if you all like this podcast, share it, star it. Um, we'd love to hear from you. So thanks again, John. Thank you. Glad thanks. to be here.